0: Well, if you like to turn with me in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1, it's fitting that we read scripture before the presentation on Athanasius. Colossians chapter 1, verse 13, Paul writes, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, our desire in this next hour is not to venerate a man, but to examine his life and doctrine, which... Points to the Son. We want to worship the eternal Son of God with greater conviction and greater fervor by the Holy Spirit to the praise of your name. We ask that this presentation would propel us to do that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The person of Jesus Christ, who he is, and what he has accomplished lie at the very center of the Christian faith. Apart from a true and right understanding of Jesus, there is no salvation. He is the image, as we just read, of the invisible God. And so apart from a right and true understanding of Jesus, not only is there no salvation, but there is no God. It's because when we say God, we mean Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The one true living God eternally exists in three distinct yet inseparable persons. And so to diminish a person of the Godhead would be to diminish the very being of God. And church, this is why each and every Sunday we sing, praise God from whom all blessings flow. And that doxology ends, praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Well, one of the reasons why we're able to lift up that song in praise is because of an early church father widely known as the father of orthodoxy. No one in all of church history defended the doctrine of the son and thus the Trinitarian doctrine of the Godhead in the manner that he did. He is largely responsible for fending off what is the greatest theological controversy in the history of Christianity. For over 45 years, he championed the deity of Jesus Christ, and subsequently the deity of the Holy Spirit for the sake of preserving the deity of God. And that during a time when it appeared that the whole world was moving in the direction of wholesale heresy. He endured through five exiles at the hands of four different Roman emperors. His life was solely dedicated in contending for the purity and the integrity and ultimately the glory of God. His name was Athanasius. Written on his epitaph are the written words Athanasius mundum, which means Athanasius against the world. C.S. Lewis, he writes this, He stood for the Trinitarian doctrine, whole and undefiled, when it looked as if all the civilized world was slipping back from Christianity into the religion of Arius. It is his glory that he did not move with the times. It is his reward that he now remains when those times, as all times do, have moved away. In other words, Athanasius contended and fought an almost impossible battle against the rising tide of false doctrine that was absolutely overtaking the church. And in the end, he won. And thus, we are the benefits of His labors, his life and his labors. He stood against countless bishops, multiple emperors, against political pressure, physical force, because he believed God to be one God consisting in the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and the Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, and not made, and the Holy Spirit proceeding from the Father and the Son, and with the Father and the Son, worship, and glorify. What we learn from Athanasius is that utterly critical to the Christian faith is the true and very deity of each of the persons of God. And if not, then our gospel is a sham. And our salvation is but an empty and vacant reality. And so to lose such a doctrine is to lose Christianity itself. A Christian then must be prepared to live and even die, to even die for it. And this is what the patristic father did. Now, let me be very clear in saying this. Athanasius in no way created nor invented nor put together the doctrine of the Trinity. Rather, he was the instrument in which God would use to not only protect the truth of the Godhead, but help explain and articulate it. You see, truth can never be created. It is timeless. Therefore, it can never be new. Rather, from the truth of Scripture, it can only be passed along or handed down. And So there were those who came before Athanasius. And we would be in great error to think that the faithful saints before him did not possess a true and right view of God. Without a doubt, they did. We have heard from some of these men the, the past several Thursdays. Polycarp of Smyrna, as he was about to be burnt in the fire, killed by the sword, he prayed this prayer. For this reason, indeed, for all things, I praise you, I bless you, I glorify you, through the eternal and heavenly high priest, Jesus Christ, your beloved son, through whom be glory to you, with him and the Holy Spirit, both now and for ages to come, amen. He prayed that prayer before he died. Prior to his death, Polycarp prayed a Trinitarian prayer to his God. Irenaeus of Lyon explained the deity of Christ in this way. He said, so then the Father is Lord, and the Son is Lord, and the Father is God, and the Son is God, for that which is begotten of God is God. There were many defenders of the Trinitarian God that, that came before Athanasius. But what set Athanasius apart from his predecessors from the past was the fact that allotted to him was a lifelong battle to defend it. When the church was deviating away from orthodoxy towards Arianism, which I'll explain. But it all really started in the second century after the apostles departed from the scene with a heresy known as modalism. And if you look at the handout I gave to you, I have definitions for you there. I have also a timeline, some key terms. I also have some um, recommended reading in the back as well. But it all started in the second century after the apostles departed from the scene with a heresy known as modalism. And that understanding of God came out came about in order to solve the tension in the language of the Trinity: How can God be three persons? Well, the answer, according to modalism or modalist, was by collapsing, collapsing the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit into one person. In other words, instead of three persons, there was just one person. They essentially denied the individual persons of the Trinity and reduced them into one person. And so the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit were simply modes or manifestations of God's existence. So sometimes God was Father, and sometimes God was Son, and other times God was Holy Spirit. They were all simply masks in a way which God would put on. And so when Jesus prayed to his Father, he was really praying to himself. Now here's why that understanding of God is so destructive. First of all, it's because it swaps out the true God for a false God. That's first. But second, it makes the gospel incoherent. When the Word of God tells us that the Father sent the Son to reconcile us to Himself and that the Son trusted in the Father in perfect obedience and that the Son died taking the condemnation we deserve from the Father and that the Son was resurrected from death to life by the Holy Spirit, it makes the gospel unintelligible and untrue. While well, this heresy became more popular into the 3rd century by a priest named Sibelius from Libya, which is why modalism is sometimes called sabellianism. But the church renounced and rejected this heresy. And this prepared the way for a heresy, another heresy called Arianism. Following the rejection of modalism or sabellianism, theologians in the early church began to work on language that helped separate the persons of the Godhead to make each person distinct. They didn't believe in three gods for sure. But nevertheless, they wanted to protect the people from falling into the prior heresy of modalism. So they stressed how the father was not the son and that the son was not the father and that the father was not the Holy Spirit and so on. And along came a priest by the name of Arius and he was one of them. He was in the camp of an anti-modalist. And he came from Libya, just like Sibelius. But his preaching brought him to Alexandria. If there was a place to preach outside of Rome, it was Alexandria. It was one of the finest, finest cities of the ancient world, renowned for its culture, regarded for its scholarship. Located on the western end of the Nile Delta, Alexandria served as a a gateway to Egypt. And on its harbor was one of the seven wonders of the world, the 400-foot-tall lighthouse called Pharos, taller than the Statue of Liberty. It also housed the, the greatest library in the ancient world, containing up to 400,000 scrolls, which is why Alexandria became known as the capital of knowledge and, and learning. Its population was only second to Rome. And so you can see how this ancient city became the center of academia throughout the entire world. Well, Arius then found himself in Alexandria. And he refuted the language of modalism. But he erred erred in going to the opposite extreme. He argued that the Father alone was God. And that the Son was the first and greatest creature made by God. Who was the Father? This made sense to Arius because of the language of the Father and the Son. A father gives birth to a son and no one considers them to be of the same being. And so Arius preached that before the universe was made, the Son was made. That he was closer to God than all the other beings that God had made. And that the manner in which the rest of creation related to God was through the Son. But only the Father was truly God. Only the Father was infinite and eternal and uncreated. In Arius, he said these words, If the Father begat the Son, then he who was begotten had a beginning in existence. And from this it follows. There was a time when the Son was not. There was a time when the Son was not. In other words, if you were to ask Arius if the Son was really God, Arius would answer that he was not. Well, by teaching this, Arius thought he was defending the truth against modalism. And it began to spread throughout Alexandria, but then to other regions in the Eastern Empire. Now, it appeared that this new teaching was going to continue to grow unchecked until the bishop, the bishop or the pastor over the churches in Alexandria, stepped in. And his name was not Athanasius but his name was Alexander. Alexander strongly opposed Arius' teaching on the doctrine of God by claiming it denied the truth of who God was. And so he responded, Alexander responded, that the Son was truly God in as absolute sense as the Father was and that Christ was not of like substance to God, but was of the same substance of God. Well, the battle lines were drawn. And the controversy began to spread. And here was one of the most clever maneuvers in which Arius made. He put his theology into little ditties, into little well-known catchy tunes. It was brilliant propaganda. Mobs were soon marching through the city, chanting the slogans of Arius' heresy. Singing his theology was one of the most effective tactics that he used for years and years throughout the whole of the controversy. it said that later in the city of Constantinople, that Arian choirs would sing in the night in the streets, but that the bishop John Chrysostom would set against them his own choirs to sing Orthodox hymns in the night in the streets. And what ensued was a street battle of rival choirs in the night. One group singing songs of heresy, and the other group singing songs of truth. Sometimes I feel like there are some in our own church who would have been super juiced to be a part of that orthodox choir. I won't name names. But people were heard in the streets singing the catchy tune, There Was a Time When the Sun Was Not. How the tune went, I don't know. But there's a lesson that we can learn here. Notice, church, that heresy doesn't always come neatly packaged with a label, with a label on it which says "Don't touch heresy." Nor is it always found within the confines of the church. You can find it in something as innocent as a catchy rhyme. You can find it on the streets. You can find it amongst those who hold it in popular opinion. Heresy is often found in the guise of something very harmless. When Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy four sixteen. To keep a close watch on yourself and the doctrine. He doesn't merely mean it when you're opening up a book or listening to a sermon, but to do so at all times everywhere. And I think, I think for us as Christians, we often have a hard time grasping that. That false doctrine and heresy comes in all shapes and forms and sizes. It comes through social media, comes through a news channel, comes through family members when you talk at a dinner table or at a family gathering. It comes through a school or a university. It comes through your own experience. Keep a close watch, Paul says, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. Well, Alexander, as the bishop of the city, he assembled a council of about a hundred bishops from Egypt and Libya. Sorry, sorry, right. on oh, my back. I'm just kidding. He gathered a group of about a hundred bishops from Egypt and Libya, and he excommunicated Arius for his heresy, and he forced him to leave the city. Now, Arius, he wasn't willing to go down that easily, and he continued preaching his view that the sun, there was a time when the sun was not. But now he started preaching it throughout Palestine, gaining more and more support for his view, and one historian wrote that in every city, bishop was contending against bishop, and the people were contending against one another like swarms of gnats fighting in the air. That's how big it exploded. Well, Alexander observed what was taking place. And he wrote a letter to all the bishops in the church throughout the entire empire on the issue. And he said, here are the consequences of Arius' view. This is what happens if we follow his teaching. He said this, The Son then is a creature and a work. Neither is he like, in essence, to the Father. Neither is he the true and natural word of the Father. Neither is he his true wisdom. But he is one of the things made and created and is called the word and wisdom by an abuse of terms. Wherefore, he is by nature subject to change and variation as are all rational creatures. Well, the person who said those words, again, like I said, was the bishop of Alexandria. His name was Alexander. But the person who wrote those words was his secretary and deacon of the church a young man by the name of Athanasius. And unlike Arius, who was tall and slender, they say that Athanasius was tiny and small. Not much is known about his background for someone who was so prolific as a writer. He never gave an extensive account of his childhood. He was born 298 A.D. in Alexandria. And by the time the Arian controversy was in full dispute, he was only about 24 years of age. Well, while in his youth, when he was young, about 14 years of age, he was spotted by the bishop Alexander as he walked the bustling streets of Alexandria. And he was found, Athanasius was found with a group of boys imitating a church service. And what's funny is that sometimes I'll walk into the youth room and I'll see our own kids and they'll be doing the same thing. And I'll usually say, hey, what are you doing? Stop that right now. Stop. No, no, no. Don't do that. That's what I'll usually say. But Alexander, he saw that Athanasius was playing the part of the pastor and that he was play-baptizing the other children. And that by immersion. He was a Baptist. But instead of yelling at the children, Alexander took Athanasius and took him under his own spiritual care. And he taught him the classics and the writings of the prior church fathers. But most of all, Alexander taught Athanasius Holy Scripture. Alexander groomed him for the ministry. And as I said, Athanasius was a small man, unimposing like Arius. He was described by his opponents as being childlike in size. And his opponents would often mock him by calling him a black dwarf because of his Egyptian dark complexion. And though he was small in stature, little did they know that Athanasius was a theological Giant. As Athanasius stood by Alexander's side, word of the dispute spread and it made it to the newly converted emperor, Constantine the Great, who was more concerned with seeing church unity than theological truth, in which there can be no unity. Division in the church, he told the bishops, is worse than war, and he felt that it was his duty as Christian emperor to restore unity to his empire's divided church. And so to settle the matter, he called the first ecumenical council of bishops from all over the Eastern Empire and a few from the West. And of the 1,800 bishops invited, there was about 300 who came to Nicaea in Asia Minor in 325 A.D. Along with the bishops, there were an even greater number of presbyters and deacons of churches, Now, there were councils before, like meetings before, consisting of a region, of an area. They would call it a regional council. But never since Acts chapter 15 in the Jerusalem council was there a council representative of the whole church. You'll remember in Acts chapter 15, there in Acts, a decision was made by the church on the issue of whether Gentile believers had to be circumcised like the Jews. Well, the apostles, they said no. And it's not that the Gentiles now became Jews, but that believing Gentiles and believing Jews now became Christians. Which is why Peter baptized the Roman centurion Cornelius rather than circumcising him. Well, what was unique about Nicaea was the fact that by the edict of the Emperor Constantine, it brought together bishops from all parts of the Christian world in order to provide a universal answer to a theological problem. And so the council met from the month of May to the end of July. And you have to understand this, that this was a monumental event. It wasn't that long ago in which the church was severely persecuted by the empire. But now you had the Roman emperor in attendance delegating this meeting with over 300 bishops and elders and deacons some of them still bearing the marks and the scars from their physical torment and their physical mutilation. The Roman emperor who was once regarded as the worst enemy of the church, now in the presence of hundreds of pastors and theologians discussing theology. And the one perk in being at Nicaea was that all in attendance were being fed daily by the best food. Because of the king. They say that they ate very, very well. Sounds like the kind of pastor's conference that we here at Pillar like to go to, where there's good food. Well, here at this council, the arguments from Arius' side and Alexander's side, they were both heard. And they went back and forth. And one interesting story to add here is that Nicholas, a bishop of Lyra from Asia Minor, was there at the proceedings. He was known to be a generous and charitable bishop, this bishop named Nicholas. You may have heard of him by the name of Saint Nick, or in the Dutch tradition, Sinterklaas. Sinterklaas. Well, the bishop was merged with old pagan Nordic folk, uh, folk tales to become somewhat of a magician who punished naughty children and rewarded the good. Well, Sinterklaas... Staunchly opposed Arius, and while Arius was in the middle of a defense, went up to him and slapped him on the face. And that's the picture you have there, because he was so frustrated with him as Santa Claus, as he was a defender of Trinitarian orthodoxy. So next time you see Santa Claus at Walmart, say thank you for defending the Trinity. Now, whether that really happened, we don't truly know. It's They say that that story began in the 1400s. But I would like to believe that it did. I would like to believe so. Well, in this council, only the bishops were allowed to speak on the floor. And at first, it appeared that the Orthodox party was in the minority. But though they were few in number, they were stronger in wisdom and intellect. Now, listen to what the historian Philip Schaff says here. He says this. And above all, the Alexandrian deacon Athanasius, who though small and young and according to later practice, not admissible to a voice or a seat in the council, demonstrated more zeal and insight than all. Remember that this council lasted for days, for weeks, for months. There is without a doubt that young Athanasius was preparing and equipping and schooling the much older bishops whenever they needed to step onto that floor to speak. In other words, he was likely the quiet force behind the orthodox argument to uphold the Trinitarian view of God. You'll notice in that picture, it's a it's a, a Coptic picture, he's stepping on Arius. It's kind of dark, but he's stepping on Arius. And you'll notice all the bishops in in the back, they have a different headdress on while he has a different one because he was a deacon. In the end, the orthodox position won. And the bishops gathered and without a doubt, Athanasius, as he worked behind the scenes, and they all together drafted and redrafted a doctrinal statement. and You have it there in your handout. A confession of faith emerged from the council of Nicaea known as the Nicene Creed. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the only begotten of His Father. And here's what's important. Of the substance of the Father, God of God, light of light, of very God, of very God, begotten, not made. Being of one substance with the Father by whom all things were made, both which be in heaven and earth, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate and was made man. He suffered. And the third day He rose again and ascended into heaven. And He shall come again to judge both the quick and the dead. And we believe in the Holy Ghost. I want you to notice what they were careful to state. Not that the Son was of different substance, or they call in theology, heteroousius, with the father, or even of similar substance, homoousius, with the father, but that the son is of the same substance, homoousius, with the father. The most important word in the creed was ousius, meaning substance, or nature, or essence. And they got that word out of Luke chapter 14, when the prodigal son, when he, when he talked about his property. It signified the deepest and innermost reality of an object, its very being. And by stating that the Son was of the same substance as the Father, the creed was affirming that the Son had the same nature, the same essence, was of the same being as the Father. Therefore, just as the Father was divine, eternal, unchangeable, uncreated, So was the Son. But notice that the council added a series of anathemas to the creed. To pronounce an anathema over someone was even stronger than excommunicating someone. It wasn't just a discipline of of a disobedient Christian by banning him from Holy Communion, but rather declaring him not to be a Christian at all. Notice the anathemas. And whosoever shall say that there was a time when the Son of God was not or that before he was begotten, he was not, or that he was made of things that were not, or that he was of a different substance or essence from the Father, or that he is a creature or subject to change or conversion. All that so say, the Catholic and Apostolic Church anathematizes them. And all the bishops there, even Arius' supporters except for two, ended up signing the creed. Well, Constantine sent Arius and his two heretical friends into exile. And upon completion of the creed, the emperor celebrated with the bishops with a a great feast because it brought an end to any controversy in the matters of faith. It's over. It's been decided. It was a decisive victory for the church and for the truth of the doctrine of God. But tragically, the win was deceptive. And the real battle was about to begin. All that took place prior was just the precursor of what would take place. Following the Council of Nicaea, three years later in 328 AD, the bishop of Alexandria, he died. And on his deathbed, he requested that Athanasius take over as bishop, which he accepted. Now that was significant because the position of the bishop in Alexandria was only second to the one in Rome. It it oversaw all the other bishops in Egypt and in Libya. And it was timely. It was providential because the cause of orthodoxy now fell onto Athanasius' lap. And that in a time when the threats against the church would be its fiercest. Now Arius, in the same year that Athanasius became bishop, he was reinstated into the church. Well, how the heck do you reinstate a dude, a heretic like Arius, back into the church? Well, Constantine the Emperor was persuaded by Arian supporters that his views really did align with the Nicene Creed. And so he was accepted. And he was, and Athanasius was ordered to reinstate Arius back into the church and back into his former position. But Athanasius he refused. Now this is where Arius' life trails away from Athanasius. History tells us that Arius, he went elsewhere. He went elsewhere to Constantinople and that to the bishop of Constantinople and that bishop was ordered to accept Arius. And like Athanasius, the bishop there, he also refused. Well, the bishop of Constantinople was was violently threatened to admit Arius or to suffer much harm. And so the bishop was in much anguish. And he went to the church, he got on his knees, and he began praying. He he began praying fervently, even weeping. And this is what he prayed. If Arius' views are right, Lord, may I not see the day in which the emperor discusses them. You see, he knew Arius' views were wrong. That was not the God he had come to know. And he prayed, may Arius suffer the penalty of his ungodliness, that his ungodliness deserves as the author of these evils. That's what he prayed. Well, the very next day when a decision was to be made, Arius proudly walked through the streets on his way to the church to take communion, expecting to be reinstated. A decision had to be made. But before he got there, he had a sudden stomach ache. And he needed to go number two. Number two. And they say that a violent seizure attacked his bowels. And he asked someone as he was walking through the streets where he could go and relieve himself. And the person said, go, go, at the back of the market, that's where you can go. And so he went off to the back of the market to do his urgent business. And there in the back of the market, he fainted. And his bowels came spilling out, spilling out of his backside, together with streams of blood. Yes, it's very graphic. I didn't want to show any pictures. There are pictures, actually. There are pictures of icons. And Arius died instantly. And that was the end of Arius. And I just wanted to tell that story because I thought it was a funny story. But coming back to Athanasius, the real attacks against him began. His opponents began spreading rumors of Athanasius buying his position as bishop because he was so young. He was only 30 when he became bishop of all of Alexandria. Alexandria. And you needed to be at least 35. He was charged with buying the bishopric. He was accused of charging illegal taxes. He was charged of uh, using black magic. And the list goes on and on. And so Athanasius was called to Rome to testify. And he was acquitted of all these false charges. But by this time, the majority of the bishops that held to this Nicene Creed started to dwindle to a minority. Because you see, all those bishops that signed that creed, they did so out of reluctance, out of fear, not out of conviction. And so for Athanasius, as he was free from those charges, a new one was brought before him. That he had murdered someone. That he had murdered an opposing bishop named Arsenius from southern Egypt. Well, this is what happened. Arsenius was bribed by opponents To disappear, to make it look like he was murdered. And with Arsenius out of the picture, they accused Athanasius of murdering him and dismembering him for cutting off his body parts. And his opponents, they said, look, look what we have. We have Arsenius' hand that Athanasius has cut off. And they said that Athanasius was using this dismembered hand for black magic. And his opponents were making rounds throughout the city, showing this hand, I don't know whose hand it was, showing this hand to prove their point. Well, Athanasius was summoned by Constantine to a trial to answer for himself. And the hand was produced at the trial as evidence to convict Athanasius. And when it was Athanasius' turn to speak, he asked those who were accusing him, Do you know Arsenius? And they replied that they did. And in a surprise move, Arsenius was ushered into the courtroom, wrapped in a cloak. And everyone was shocked. Arsenius, you're here. You're not dead. But obviously for the opponents, they knew he wasn't dead. You see, Athanasius' friends had tracked him down, hiding in the forest, and brought him to the court. But with both of Arsinius' hands covered by the cloak, Athanasius, before all the people, asked him, Show me your hand. And he pulled out one hand. Everyone's <gasps> shocked. But obviously, the, he has two hands. So, you know. The people were in suspense watching, and it was very exciting. And then Athanasius said, Show me your other hand. And he pulled out his other hand. <gasps> and Athanasius, the, his accusers were so ridiculous. They were so crazy that they requested to know when did you cut off his third hand? He had a third hand. When did you cut it off? This is his third hand. There was no winning with these heretics. And here's the thing, church. Athanasius was still found guilty and he was condemned. He was condemned. He fled on a boat to appeal to Constantine, but another accusation was thrown, another false witness was created, and that Athanasius had tried to starve the citizens of the capital by preventing food shipments from Alexandria. And so the emperor banished him in the year 336 A.D. Well, Constantine, he died in 337 A.D. And his empire was divided among his three sons, and one of his sons, Constantine II, reinstated Athanasius back to his office as bishop, and he returned back to Alexandria with cheering crowds. But here's how the rest of Athanasius' life would play out. Two years later, he was exiled for a second time, but for a longer period of time, seven years, as a man by the name of Eusebius, leader of the Arians, took power into his hands. Well, during this time in exile, this is what Athanasius did he began to write. He began to write. And he wrote a two part work against the heathen. And On the Incarnation, which I recommend everyone to read. It's a really short work. Written on the divine word made flesh. It's a theology of Christ. Well, he came back to Alexandria in 346 A.D. But then he was exiled for a third time. And in this third occasion, 5,000 soldiers launched a surprise attack on his church while he was leading a worship service. And the soldiers rushed in with swords drawn and Athanasius ordered for his people to get out lest they get killed. And during this rush, a group of monks came into the church, grabbed Athanasius, and smuggled him out of the chaos. Well, you see, for Athanasius, although his work had him in the center of Alexandria, during his time as a deacon and as a secretary, he made a visit to the Egyptian desert where he came in contact with a group of ascetic monks. And a close bond was made between them. And this relationship went on for years and they became one of his most trusted friends. Maybe because their lives were so polar opposite of his. He was in the hustle and bustle of Alexandria while they lived in the desert. But these monks saved Athanasius as he was exiled for the third time. And these desert monks, they would protect Athanasius. You see, Athanasius, there was a price on his head, and any time the imperial search party went out or got close, these monks would whisk him away. Sometimes they hid Athanasius in a, in a dry cistern, sometimes in a cemetery. Sometimes they disguised him so that he was able to go back to Alexandria. But for Athanasius, the more he was exiled, the more powerful he became, because the more they exiled him, the more he wrote. And he wrote while in hiding against the Arians that was a masterpiece that dismantled the Arian doctrine of the Son of God. Well, whenever there was the death of an emperor, Athanasius was brought back from exile only to be banished back when his opponents accused him of something and sought to kill him. And so Athanasius was exiled a total of five times in the span of 30 years. And what I find incredible about Athanasius is that every time, every time that Athanasius returned home, he returned home back to his church to be the pastor of his church. At the end of the day, Athanasius was a shepherd. He didn't have to come back. Every single time, he didn't have to come back. By coming back, he risked his life. He stared down soldiers. He stood before emperors. He faced the wrath of his accusers, all for the sake, all for the sake of protecting his flock. You see, he took seriously, with all of his life, Paul's Trinitarian charge to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, verse 28, where Paul says, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. You see, Athanasius fought for and championed the doctrine of the Trinity and the doctrine of the Son of God in order to save his hearers. Well, Athanasius, he died in 373 AD. He died very quietly around the age of 75, living his remaining years, pastoring the church. I have a picture here. Athanasius was originally buried in Alexandria, but his remains were moved, were transported to the church of San Zachariah in Venice, Italy. And here there is an altar where he is, his remains are there. And what's interesting to note, the reason why the church is called San Zacharias, because they say that the remains of Zacharias the uh, father of John the Baptist, is buried there. But I don't know about that. I don't know about that one. I don't think there's any historical validity to that. But they wanted to name the church after him, and they made some kind of thing over his body. But here is Athanasius, and his remains were brought into this place. Well, what do we learn from Athanasius? Not only the love of doctrine, but the wholesale commitment to stand by it. And that because he loved God. He loved God. He loved God in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You know, I'll close with this story. You'll know that Athanasius had a close kinship with the desert monks. He had a very close relationship with them. They protected him. They saved him. Well, he was closest to a monk by the name of Antony. Antony. Because in Antony, he saw a life of holiness and godliness in which he greatly admired. And Antony was about 40 years older than Athanasius. And so he saw Antony as as the model Christian. So much so that he wrote a biography on his friend Antony. Well, that biography was translated from Greek to Latin and found its way into the hands of a man named Pontitianus. Pontitianus Pontitianus had a friend in mind that would benefit from this biography, this biography of a man who devoted his life to living for Christ in holiness and godliness and unstained from the world. Pontitianus gave it to his friend Augustine. Sometime after 380 A.D., Augustine was given this biography, and by reading it, Augustine said that he was violently overcome by a fearful sense of shame. Well, why? Because he was living at, at the time such an immoral and sinful life. And it would lead to his help, to his eventual conversion, the eventual conversion of one of, one of the greatest theologians in the history of the church. Which Pastor Dave will come and speak about. You see, Athanasius' legacy would have ripple, ripple effects, ripple effects. That love for God was in a way immortal. It was undying in Athanasius. But more so the Son of God, whom he devoted the whole of his life defending immortal, eternal very God of very God. And you see, ironically, this is the meaning of Athanasius' name. His name is Athanatos. Athanasius. Athanatos. Immortal. Undying. So church, as we close, would our love for Christ, for God, our triune God, be the same? Undying. Let's pray together. God God Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, we thank you for the example set by Athanasius from long ago in contending for the very truth of God. We can only worship you truly when we know you rightly. Elevate and increase our worship when we worship you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You are worthy in all three persons to be praised. And we know that apart from you there is no gospel and there is no salvation. And would we like Athanasius always live to maintain and uphold and honor the reputation of Jesus' name. May we confess Him before men without shame no matter what the cost as He confesses us before His Father. In the name of the eternal Son who is co-eternal and co-equal with the Father and through the Holy Spirit who eternally proceeds from the Father and the Son, we pray. Amen.